Welcome to Leverage Masters, airing weekly on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern and on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Leverage Masters hosts Jack Humphrey and Gina Gaudio Graves discuss leverage strategy with guest leveragists. Be sure to subscribe to Leverage Masters in your favorite podcatcher for great tips and case studies on using leverage to achieve your biggest goals much faster. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Leverage Masters. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Grace, the founder of Divisio.com, the all-new affiliate network for companies doing good. And I have my co-host, Andrea Adams-Miller from the Red Carpet Connection, also joining us. Hello, Andrea. Good morning, good morning from Ohio today. Wow, you're almost never home in Ohio. I know, it's a rarity. <laughs> it really is. And we have got a fantastic show and guest for everybody. So why don't you go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about who our guest is, Andrea. Well, I would love to. I've had the pleasure of getting to know her recently. Her name is Phyllis Amen, and Phyllis is known as the voice for elder care advocacy. She is an elder care consultant, an advocate, a speaker, and she's also a speech and language pathologist who brings an insider view to the nursing home industry after working 40-plus skilled nursing short-term rehabilitation facilities for over 25 years. So she knows what she's talking about. In her second book about the industry called Overdue, Quality Care for Our Elder Citizens, she provides valuable insight and necessary information for, for individuals and families so they can become more informed and effective advocates for themselves and for their loved ones. She's been a regular guest on WGCHAM and Greenwich Business Talk Radio since November of 2018 and has been on Sustainable Success Show on Voice America, and she's also a board member of the Massachusetts Advocates for Nursing Home Reform, and as her pathology background, she's been known for her empathy and high standards of care while building and creating innovative programs in an effort to improve the quality of life and quality of care for all nursing home residents. I'm really excited to have her on, and I love the idea that we're doing an elder care advocacy program program on my grandmother's 93rd birthday. <laughs> so oh my show, goodness. <laughs> That's pretty cool, Andrea. Yes, thank you. And my dad just got out of a nursing home about a week ago. Well, good congratulations for that. <laughs> I'm afraid he's very quickly going to go back in, though, so... I can't wait oh. to hear what Phyllis has to share with our audience. Yeah, Phyllis. So when we're talking about advocacy and elder care, like what is it? I mean, like, so, uh, you know, a lot of people think they know what they need for their parents and have, you know, an expectation of what should happen in the world. But what do we need to know that we don't even know that we don't know? Uh, well, first of all, thanks both of you for having me. And um, it's it's really thrilling that I'm here on you know your um your grandfather's uh, birthday and and to he talk with somebody who has somebody who who just got out of a nursing home because you know what i tell people is everybody is touched by this in some way and you bring up a very important point andrea about people not knowing what they don't know um you know most people wind up in a nursing home kind of living situation. I, I hesitate using the word facility. I'm trying to change the language about that so we change our thinking about it because it sounds very institutional. And I think that, um, you know, what happens is whether they go there for short-term rehabilitation or they need to live there for a longer period of time, um, you know, people are kind of at the mercy of, what I call the glossy marketing brochures, you know, just like anything else. You have to dig beneath the surface. And what I found after working in over 40 skilled nursing facilities is that, you know, people don't know the information that they need to know when they go looking for a place like this for their loved ones, and therefore they don't know the questions to ask and why they're asking those questions. And it's so important so that you can become a better advocate for 
the care that you want your loved one to receive. And when I work with families, they they become better advocates because they have the knowledge that they need. So I tell people to plan by choice and not by crisis. Don't wait until you're in the situation. Plan in advance. Get the information in advance, just like we do in other situations, like, you know, you, you get car insurance before, before you're in a car accident or medical insurance before you need it. This is, I feel that this falls in the same category. Well, that's excellent advice and information that many people fail to do. And, you know, and we don't bring this up to shame anybody. It's just something that we put off. We, you know, like they're doing great, they're doing great, they're doing great. And then all of a sudden there's a fall and injury, a health problem, something happens and you're totally caught off guard. And then you are forced to make decisions without education um, and knowledge and advice and so forth. So what you're saying about doing some research ahead of time and getting it in place is uh, so instructive. I actually did some business consulting for a healthcare, home healthcare agency uh, last year where they helped with people in, inside of their homes so that they could stay out of um, an in-care facility. And basically what I loved how their model was is they were really about informing the families and creating this whole system of healthcare that's already set up years prior to anything happening because while we well actually let me ask you this before I even go into that what is the definition of like an age of what's considered an elder these days well it's so interesting that you asked me that question and I mean we didn't prepare this at all and I it's the why it's so interesting is because I just wrote an article about this that I think I'm going to either publish as my first blog or newsletter. And in that article, I, I say, you know, who really decides what age that is? You know, I, I think we have this predisposed way of thinking about older people. You know, I know when I was younger, when you were 30, you were over the hill. And I think it sets up this mindset of, you know, be, being over the hill or in your, you know, you know, declining or, or something like that. So that's like, a, who, who decides that? Is it 60s? Is it 70s? Is it 80s? Is it 90s? You know, uh, I'm sure we all know people besides people in our own family who, who you know, know people who've lived to 90 or even 100 years old and are alert and spry and active. So who really decides what that age is? I, that's a, it's such a great question, and, and I pose that in my article. Like, who who makes that decision for society or for each of us as an individual? Well, I'm so glad I you mentioned that because, you know, Gina and I, we have discussions and we, you know, think and talk about who we've had on the show and where they are in their worlds. Uh, people vary at different ages. At ages, you know, when we, even if you look at photographs of people, um, I have people who are my same age at 50, and I look at their pictures and and their physicality and like Facebook and what they're doing, and and they look like elders in an elder situation because their uh, their ability and their capacity to move around. They some of them have um, uh, their. It seems like their capacity to remember things and their intellect has diminished. And you know, I wonder is there health concerns or is it that they're just not active and stimulated and doing different things? You know, the way that they look and present themselves, they look so much different in age that I'm I'm. I'm, I'm taken aback by that because I'm like, really, how could you be the same age as me? Because we don't um, show up in the world as 50 being what I consider 50 to be. And for other people, 50 could be that you are, um, you know, approaching elder. In fact, I'm, I'm, consistently um, engaged by AARP begging me to come on in, you know, and I believe I just became qualified this year to, to belong to our, uh, it's still called senior citizens facility and uh, which I'm happy, you know, to be, I'm honored because I've helped uh, contribute to that facility, but it does make a really big difference in how we make those decisions on um, preparing because if it's true that, Tomorrow, I could have instant decline, then at 50, then I need to have my family already prepared. And, and the reality is, is, I may look young and seem like I've got my wits about me, but it doesn't necessarily mean that 
I will tomorrow or that I even do today. (laughs) You know, I think you bring up some really great talking points that I address routinely. Uh, One is that, um, you know, when you say there are people who are your age who don't look as you do, and, you know, that's not saying that, ascribing any blame or responsibility it could be genes it could be you know what they've chosen to do as you know as have they been active how you know what their diet has been and i think that has a, a lot to do with it um but i think also that um what you say about there, you know there are things that you can do you know become more active and and continue to learn and keep your brain active and and all of those things contribute um to being more fit, I think, physically and and mentally. But when you say, you know, you could be at the precipice of a decline, unbeknownst to you, you know, I I always use this story as an an example that I was working in a building um, several years ago, and it was was, uh, December, and so it got dark early, and it was raining that particular day, and I was rushing out because I had a long ride home, and I um, stepped off the curb into a puddle only it wasn't a puddle it was a hole and I fell and I sprained my ankle so I use that as an example only to say that before I stepped in that hole I was fine and we're all fine until something happens and we're not right and so it could be anything a a tickle in your throat that becomes a cold and of course it could become something more serious than that Um, I'm 66 and um, Andrea, you and I spoke the other day. I'm at my I, at the beginning of a second career. Um, you know, I think there are many people in their 60s and 70s that are looking forward to, you know, continued years exploring new opportunities and passions. And I think that's important to keep yourself mentally and physically vital. But there's something else I'd like to talk about when you said AARP because I really talk about that. I also, when I, obviously I'm 66, so I started getting the material when I was in my 50s, right? And uh, they, they start sending it to you at 50, I believe. And I really resisted that for years. I was like, I'm not a retired person. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't have anything to do with me. That's for older people or old people. And I think there is, you know, a way of thinking about that. So... Uh, a few years ago, I finally acquiesced because I think it was only two or three years ago. And um, I was in California visiting my son, and we went out someplace, and I took out my AARP card. And he said, why, you're old now? <laughs> and, it, you know, that's when it really started to hit me, you know, that we all have these ideas and how did that make me feel. And I was embarrassed to use the card for a very long time because I thought the connotation that it brought with it. So I thought it's very interesting that you brought that up. Well, I, Gina, how do you feel about that? Because for me, I, I've taken pride with uh, growing older, but I know that I am not necessarily in the normal. Uh, I have friends who are devastated about becoming 50 and and how they approach, you know, age. And I have a friend right now who's planning like she's got 18 months until she's 45 you know and that to her is like devastating and I don't want to discredit her feelings and at the same time I'm like how do I encourage people to feel really excited about their age and not think of that as a negative Uh, so uh, so what's your opinion on that well I just turned 55 a few weeks ago 50 didn't seem to bother me and I think part of the reason it didn't is Since 1996, I have been totally disabled. And between 96 and 2006, even though I was in my 30s and 40s, I actually looked like I was in my 70s and 80s. I was married at the time, and it was not unusual for people. We'd walk into a restaurant or a store, and people would say to my husband, oh, let me get a chair for your grandmother or let me get a chair for your mom. And he'd be going, but that's my wife. And he was older than me. I just looked old because I was so sick. So 50 didn't bother me. But this year, I'm now single. It's my first birthday this year that I am single after 26 years of marriage. And 55 really bothered me a lot. 
but I have been a proud card-carrying AARP member since I turned 50, and I use it anytime I can because the savings are so fantastic. Why would I not want to save money no matter what my age? And certainly a good point. Actually, I, um, you know, I've been the host of a TV show called The Golden Years: Understanding Better Living on Hartford Public Access TV, and I interviewed um, Nora Duncan, who's the uh, Connecticut um, head of the Connecticut AARP. And um, what she told me at the time was actually that they're trying to brand and change. RP to stand for real possibilities. And when she said that to me, I was I was I hadn't seen that online, but I was like, wow, how fantastic is that? Because that goes along with this whole, you know, idea people are living longer and they they have many years of productive life in front of them. Let's not limit them. And you know, for for so long we thought 65 you retire and that's kind of because you're no longer productive, let's say, in the job market that that's kind of like the end but it could be the beginning it is really real possibilities what do you think about that i like that a lot i thought it was great when she said it it just opened a a whole other world for me and since i talk about a lot about our attitudes towards our elder citizens and the care they receive you know as as uh, andrea said i come from the skilled nursing facility space so, you know, that's what's always in the forefront of my mind when I think about how we're caring for people. And I'm sure that most listeners, you know, have this idea, you know, the hallmarks of nursing homes or people sitting in wheelchairs and kind of just looking vacant, you know, into space or out the window. And it doesn't really have to be that way. I've interviewed people from other parts of the country. I've visited um buildings where they have a different attitude and mindset and and people continue to live i mean they're continuing life's journey this is their advancing years but it to me it's just geography they can't live at home anymore for whatever reason so now they have to move into this location and they can live productive lives there are there are places out there doing wonderful things and have wonderful programs unfortunately that's not what we think of and that really isn't the norm and that's why I'm so vocal about advocacy and people becoming more informed and effective advocates knowing you know how these places function and, and what they're what they can demand for their loved ones because essentially it's our future selves it's, it's really about us it's not an us and them because you know we're all getting there assuming we get there Well, in our largest segment of our population is the baby boomer generation, right? They are the people that are typically considered our elders these days. But that also means that people Andrea's age, my age, from mid-40s to mid-50s, are now having to take on roles of being a caregiver for a parent, a grandparent, etc. And it's a role that none of us have really been groomed for and it gets thrust upon us usually in some dire situation or some emergency situation what can we do to prepare ourselves for both being caregivers and really aiding our elders regardless of what that age actually happens to be uh you know, correct, because it could be at any age that something happens and you have to take on the role of caregiver. You know, I became a part-time caregiver for my grandmother when I was 15 years old, which I believe is what led me to this. And, um, you know, whoever expected that? And, and just what you say, people don't anticipate that or anticipate what that involves. And I think it's important to have those conversations. I do seminars on caregiving, actually, and it's important for families to set up that conversation beforehand. You know, I, um, you know, I read a statistic that um, people are more willing to have a conversation, 40% are more willing to have a conversation with their older parents, especially about um, funeral arrangements, than they are about these caregiving conversations or 
having to take away their keys because it's no longer safe for them to drive. So I think it's very important for people to be proactive, just like I was saying about getting information about, you know, where you might wind up beforehand, before that happens. It's this same kind of thing that families should get together and talk about this. People should know, you know, what a, a parents or loved ones, what their wishes are, just like they do with advanced directives or wills or, or anything like that. It's very important because once it's thrust upon the family, there's a lot of stress involved, strife, you know, discordancy among, you know, possibly family members, whether they're siblings or other family members, and it's important for everyone to be on the same page and determine how much each person is going to do. Are they going to be able to contribute? What is the plan mm -hmm. actually going to be? You know, I interviewed someone um um, several weeks ago, and she was telling a story about how her sister had taken on the role of a caregiver for her mother. They lived in Florida, and she lived up here in the Northeast, and it was becoming increasingly burdensome as her mother continued to decline, both physically and cognitively. And I, I think she was single at the time, and you know, she also, it's called the sandwich generation. You know, she had, she, oh, she wasn't single. I'm sorry. I take that back. Excuse me. She had a family, and she had job responsibilities. And, you know, it's called the sandwich generation. You know, she was, like, squeezed in between. And so her sister, the one who lived up north, had suggested that maybe it was time for her mother to move into another kind of living arrangement, an assisted living or, or maybe even a, a nursing home situation. And what she said was, I, I made a promise never to do that. But the person she made that promise to was her father who had died 15 years prior. So I think people also have expectations, family expectations, promises they've made, cultural expectations, religious expectations that comes into play here. And people are really struggling in silence. It's, it's a very, I, you know, you bring up a very important point. It's a very difficult decision. So I, I encourage people um, to sit down and have that conversation. And, and, you know, in some cases I work with families and I'm instrumental in that and give, at the same time providing them the information that they need but helping them through those conversations. And sometimes they need a facilitator um, to, to get that conversation moving because it's not a pleasant topic. It's not a pleasant topic. It's challenging for people. And at the same time, if, if it's handled early, um, it, it's less unpleasant. <laughs> you know, if, if we're addressing things um, at an early situation and if we address them in such a way that we take the backstory of feeling and emotion out of it and just go with fact and talk about this is what's happening and this is what's happening and try not to take our personal uh, feelings, thoughts, judgments, and so forth to the table. Yeah, I think it's important to have everybody in that who participates in that conversation understand, especially let's say if it's an older parent, um, to say, listen, we're really a team here. We want the best. Um, we want you to have the best care. We want you to be safe. It's about your safety and well-being. And how can we all work together as a team to make that happen? I think, you know, there's an expression about parenting your parents and all of that. And, you know, I, I tend to ob object to that a little bit because this is an adult. And even if cognitively they've declined and they're not as capable as they were to make certain decision decisions as they were previously, you know, these are people who nurtured you. They took care of you. And they're also feeling lost at the inability to continue to take on that role and to fulfill that role. And so I think there's a lot of sensitivity that goes into that conversation because otherwise it, it becomes very confrontational and brings up a lot of feelings that, you know, thwart the process rather than, you know, further the process. Right. And I, I, do, I do see that <clears throat> between siblings, you know, there's always somebody who steps up and does things, and and because um, they often are the one who steps up, um, feelings get in the way that, oh, I'm the one that does everything. But also what happens is they don't realize that the other siblings are like, okay, well, 
I see that you step up and that's what you want to handle and that's important to you. So I'm going to let you do that. And so they may not do things because they're letting the one person be in charge where the person in charge isn't realizing that and thinks, Oh my gosh, you do nothing. And I do everything. <laughs> and, then this, and it's like, no, you actually are all on the same page. And then at the same time, you know, the people who control or, or try to push things through on the parent that they're not ready for, um, that they uh, need more time to think about it or, or more information. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll share a story. My grandmother fell recently in her garage. She has one of those things that you push the button, you know, and say, I've fallen and I can't get up. Well, she, she didn't want to push the button because she, didn't, she knew that they would send an ambulance and it was early in the morning and she didn't want to wake up the neighbors. So she didn't push the button that she had. Um, so part of what I realized is like, did anybody ever tell her that when she calls to push the button that it actually talks to her and she can communicate with them and have an alternative situation done? Like my mom called first to come or have the ambulance set without lights and siren, that those are choices in the matter. So like nobody ever told her that there's a variable in there, other variables. So in her mind, I pushed the button, there's total chaos, and all I did was fall, I'm not dying, I just fell. And, yeah, and I think so, that's a, a great, you know, speaks to what I'm talking about in terms of getting the information you need. So it's it's all aspects of the situation that you need information about. You know, it's interesting what you just said. I had some uh, surgery last year, and um, I, I live by myself, and it's, you know, a fairly spacious uh, environment. And, um, you know, I was a little concerned, and actually the doctor was concerned. I mean, my friend took me home, but then I was here by myself, and I actually got one of those things because I said, you know, suppose I need help, you know, there's nobody here for me to call, really. And um, it sat there for a long time. I didn't charge it. I didn't use it. And I finally sent it back, um, which really, you know, goes against what I was saying about being here by myself. I think, that, you know, it's that stigma, you know, it, it goes back to that stigma about that I'm going to need help, that I'm going to be dependent, that, you know, somebody's going to come and disrupt somebody else. And I think the more education people have, the more we talk about this, these situations, you know, the better it will be. One of my goals is to really elevate this conversation to more of a, of a national conversation. You know, it, it percolates. There are plenty of people talking about it. You know, when I, I do seminars and I ask people how many people are touched by this directly and directly, you know, I ask several questions. By the end, everybody's hand is raised. And, um, but but it's not really at the forefront of a national conversation. I know we have other issues to discuss as well, but I think it's important because as of 2035, the over 65 population is going to outnumber the under 18 population. So this is a known fact, and people are living longer, and they do have greater needs. So I really believe that we need to address this in a more vocal way. And my idea is that the more people I can work with, the more people that can become more effective and informed advocates, and the more people that are demanding better for their loved ones who eventually will be themselves, that hopefully that will the more voices that speak out about this, the more it can elevate the conversation. Well, I think that would be amazing. And I, I, I know I hear conversations about it, and that could be because of the world that I'm in. Um, I, I show up in, in health conferences and, and different areas of a business where they talk about um, hiring people who are older and so forth. And I know that Gina and I talk about things with people that we bring up topics that are more inclusive of all kinds of ages and experiences and so forth. Um, if, if you could wave and a magic wand. Let me just add my story about the button. Okay. A year after my it. husband left me, I woke up one morning feeling so awful. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it from where I sleep to the bathroom. I made it to the bathroom and totally collapsed. I couldn't yeah. even dial the phone. I couldn't see. 
Well, thank God at 7 a.m. every morning, my mom calls me to wake me up. When she called, I was already kind of passed out. And it took three calls, but I finally heard the phone, managed to answer it, and all I could muster was help. Turns out that overnight I had contracted E. coli, sepsis, and total renal failure. By the time the EMTs got to me, I had been stuck there for almost two and a half to three hours. They couldn't even find my pulse. My temperature had dropped into the 80s, and I was hypothermic because I had such a severe case of sepsis and renal failure, and I did not have a button. Hmm. I was in intensive care for 10 days. I coded four times. <clears throat> First thing I did when I got home was I got my button, and thank goodness I did because four months later I ended up with C. difficile in a very, and sepsis in a very similar situation, and I was able to call for help. They were then able to call and reach my mom so that she didn't have to start calling me, not getting an answer, and panicking. And I've used it twice since then, both times because I'm living alone. I really was in trouble and wouldn't have had any other way. Somebody would have found me dead on the floor if it wasn't for my button. So I don't think the button is something that, You have to have just when you're old, it can be of benefit to any single person. And the first one I got was hooked up to the Wi-Fi system in my house. And because I live in Florida where we have hurricanes, our Wi-Fi sometimes goes in and out a lot during tropical season. Well, one time I needed the button, couldn't use the button because the Wi-Fi was down. Well, after that hospitalization, I came home and got a whole new button. This one's now attached to a cellular tower, and I can go anywhere in my house, outside my house, and it actually can give me a a great sense of peace of mind to be able to go out and about to festivals or to a restaurant, knowing that if I do get into any issues, all I have to do is push my button and help is going to be there. You know, so, I think that's that's a you know, I think it first of all, I'm I'm so thrilled that you're okay and and that it's that your family was your mother was able to find you in time and you know, these are horrible And she things lives 1900 miles away, Phyllis. She it's not like she lives around the corner. I I understand, but that she was able to, you know, by phone. I mean, and and yeah. there you know, there are people that don't even have that. So I mean, it's, you know, you're so blessed and we're blessed that you're here. And, you know, certainly I've, I've worked with people, you know, in skilled nursing facilities and, and uh, subacute units who have experienced what you went through, and it's, you know, I certainly feel for you. Um, but, you know, I think you bring up something really very, very important, and, and maybe this is, you know, something that I will add that you've made me think about in talking with families. And I know there's a stigma in walking around with this thing around your neck and people don't want to do that. But, you know, maybe, you know, families, you know, who have older loved ones who are out and about and independent at different levels would feel um, more at ease if they knew that their, their, their loved one had that button with them when they went anyplace. Because, as I, we said earlier, anything really could happen any time, whether it's in your house or, like you said, you could be in a festival. I mean, anything can happen. Anywhere you could be driving. I use a button from a company called VRI Cares, and I selected this button very specifically. I mean, like I went out searching for it. One of my favorite functions is because it's a cellular technology, it's not based on a Wi Fi system, it has a built in GPS. So, God forbid, mom didn't hear from me for 24 to 48 hours or any of the people that look in on me from time to time. If they couldn't find me, they all have the number to call VRI. VRI can call and see exactly where my GPS is located, whether I'm moving or not. And they can then break in on the button and say, just doing a wellness check on you. Is everything okay, Gina? And if it's I not, they'll send fantastic. help immediately. I think that's fantastic. And, um, you know, I, I'm working with a gal um, in the Midwest, 
her name is uh, Sissy Patton, and she has this uh, Boomer's Way Club, and we're we're collaborating on on a variety of projects. And um, you know, she provides valuable information. She has a daily calendar and activities calendar, and provides very valuable information for um, families and seniors, you know, on a daily basis. And um, you know, I'm going to mention this to her, and 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 suggest that you know she might want to look into it to include that because I think it's it's extremely extremely important. So I'm so glad. And the you other that thing up. that my family has done that has just been such a godsend. Amazon has come out with I can't say the word. It's A L E X A. Right. Alexa <laughs> devices. If I say it, all mine are going to trigger. I know. And I know. I get it. <laughs> there they go. And you can set them up with trusted individuals so that they can drop in on one another. So this morning, my mom called. I had an early, early morning call at 6 o'clock. Mom got up at 4.45 in the morning, God love my mother, to call me at quarter to 6 my time. She's on Central. I'm on Eastern to make sure that I was awake. And she called my cell phone three times. My phone never rang. And I don't know why it didn't ring, but it didn't ring. So now mom's panicked. She could have called VRI and had them drop in on me, but we have a preliminary step that I want mom to take. And that is she drops in on my Echo Show, which is actually a video screen. looks like a little iPad. And she just says, A-L-E-X-A, drop in on Gina's Echo Show, and it automatically connects. She can see the video camera, and I'm sound asleep next to her, and I get, Gina, time to wake up. And I look over, (laughs) and here's Mom's face on my screen. That has been such a huge gift. We have a number of family members all connected through it. And we have had people fall, need help, and they've used that to contact a family member for help. Well, you know, I think, you know, all this technology is helping families feel, you know, a little more confident or have a little more peace of mind Mm -hmm. in having an older person, loved one, stay in their home longer because they do have ways of checking in on them, on reminding them of things, you know, there are commercials about that. Um, I think it's very important if, if people, you know, people can use that and allow people to, to stay in their home as long as they can. I mean, how much better can you get than that? Uh, you know, there there are tremendous. Totally agree. There. Yeah, but uh, people do want to stay in their homes longer, and you know, there is this, you know, idea about you know moving into a nursing home, and I particularly use that word moving because. Like I say, I think it's more consistent with geography. I mean, we sometimes we downsize or, you know, we go from maybe when we're single or younger, we move from an apartment to a house, and then maybe, you know, we downsize and move from one house to another or to a smaller house. But somehow when people go into a nursing home, you know, we tend to say they're put in a nursing home. And I, I rather use the word moving, which also goes along with the whole idea of geography. Um so, but people, you know, don't want to do that if they don't have to. They want to remain in the comfort of their surroundings or, or maybe even move in with their family members, but they can stay in their homes as long as possible with technology has been great in that regard. You know, it has its flip side, but it has its wonderful, you know, benefits that it adds to people's lives and makes, you know, everybody feel more comfortable. So I think it's, you know, it's very important. I'm glad that you're using it. I think it's terrific. It's really been great. And we even do holiday dinners. You know, 1,900 miles between us is kind of a lot. But I'm usually by myself for holidays now, and my parents are together, but by themselves. So for holidays, Mom and I will actually plan our meals ahead of time so that I'm making the exact same menu that she's making. And then we get on the Echo Show so that we can see one another. She puts it in the middle of her dinner table. I put mine in the middle of my dinner table. And we actually feel like we're having a meal together because we're eating the same foods. We're eating at the same time. We have a total blast every holiday just because we feel like we're together. 
What a creative idea. Absolutely creative. I mean, I think that's brilliant. I think it's terrific because how do we all bond? You know, we bond from the time we're born. How do we bond? You know, we're bonded, you know, by food, by nutrition, you know, we're held in someone's arms, and whether it's your parent or some other person or loved one, doesn't matter. I'm just talking about in and of itself, you know, and, and you receive, you know, a bottle and you look up and you coo and you smile and you're being held and there's, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. And as we, you know, get older, a lot of our memories around family times or holiday times and meals and, and um, you know, as people, you know, live in more distant places – they lose that, and, um, you know, it can become very lonely. I mean, my son, he lives in California, and I, you know, we have arranged over the past few years, you know, sometimes I'll go out there for a holiday, he'll come here, but the times we're not together, it's, uh, you know, you, you miss that, and um, what we have done, my daughter lives not too far, you know, we'll call him on Skype during some of those meals, but this would really be, you know, an even greater idea because, like you say, you feel like you're, the person is with you, and you're with them. So that's yeah. really very creative. It's fantastic. Love that idea. And about two years ago, my dad said, you know, the only thing that could make this any better is when we were all together in the same house, after a holiday meal, we would usually play cards. Oftentimes it was playing Pinochle. So the next holiday came around. I had gone online. I had found an app that allowed you to play Pinochle with friends remotely, made mom and dad set it up on both of their cell phones. I had it on my cell phone. We sat there with our Echo Show so we could see one another sitting around the table playing Pinochle for two hours after our meal. I mean, how fantastic. But, you know, something just came to my mind as you said that because for people who – are not in their own homes or, you know, living in a place, um, you know, where, where maybe they have access to that technology. I'm thinking, uh, as I'm thinking as I'm talking, actually, that, you know, for people in nursing home facilities, I mean, I hate to keep bringing it back to that, but, but that's the space I come from, so that's where my mind goes, is that, wow, how creative an idea would this be? for people that are in nursing home facilities whose family lives, you know, a distance away to to be able to incorporate some of this technology so they can have that ex- that experience. I mean, you know, mom I brought the echo show to dad's nursing home room. He was he just got out a week ago. He was there for 90 days. And she brought the echo show there almost every Sunday. So every Sunday we could still have family dinner together while Dad was in the nursing home. Well, you just gave me a great idea, and I'm going to really, um, you know, really advocate for this and give people this as an idea uh, because, you know, being separated, especially around holiday time, can be very painful, but it's not only holidays, as you say. It can be Sunday dinner, you know, whatever traditions you and your family right. have established and people, you know, people miss their families and, you know, it could actually people could even be nearby and there may be, you know, logistics as to why, you know, they, they can't visit them at any particular time. I, I wouldn't want people to feel guilty about the fact that they can't do that, but there are other means that we can use so they can be together and how meaningful would that be and give so much to to people who are alone or are in a nursing home to still be able to experience their family during these special times, it would it would mean the world to them. The and other so thing technology. my parents use it for is they're very active in their church. Where I grew up Catholic, 19 years of Catholic education, and my parents are still extremely active. And about 25 years ago or so, they started a rosary group at their church. Well, now that my parents are almost 80 years old, it's getting harder and harder, especially in the winter, for them to get to church every Tuesday night to hold this rosary group. So they now use the same technology to bring all the people that participate in the rosary group. There's about 50 of them. They all come together on a video conference on Tuesdays. Some people are at the church. Others are at home. Others are in nursing homes. 
and they all do the rosary together every Tuesday night. I mean, I think that's great. And I think basically what this, you know, all boils down to is thinking creatively about how people can still be in touch with each other, communicate, you know, sh- share the, the the love that they have with their with their families and loved ones and special on special occasions or like you say it could be a rosary club could be anything playing a, a you know mm-hmm. a game of cards can be anything and i it's just people thinking creatively think outside the box there are so many opportunities now to to be able to think about that and um to look into those possibilities i think it's just mm-hmm. you know having the wherewithal to do it and i guess you know some places are more equipped. Uh, I don't know if they go by Wi-Fi or, or you know, All how they need works, is Wi-Fi, just Wi-Fi. And it doesn't even need to be a very fast connection for it to work properly. That's, uh, that's it, great just Wi-Fi. That, that's great to know. You know, and another aspect of people being able to remain in their homes and people having a, a comfort level um, is telemedicine. And I think as telemedicine becomes oh, more popular. Oh, that's a big deal. Yeah, as telemedicine becomes more popular, you know, people can access, you know, medical care. They could have their their blood pressure taken, or if they're diabetic, have their sugar levels read, or you know, how, you know, whatever that's going to be. Or if they don't feel well, maybe they could even avoid going to a hospital if they have access to that. I mean, that's another huge, huge area that I think people need a lot more information about. And I'm involved in um, with a, a telemedicine company actually about how we're going to, you know spread that word and, and help families feel more secure about people in, in their homes and, and even in nursing homes, to tell you the truth. It can prevent hospitalizations. It could provide, you know, um, a level of care that's needed when a doctor isn't available in a way that, you know, keeps people safer and, you know, keeps them healthier and um, avoids unfortunate consequences sometimes. So that's huge. iHealth has a whole huge. line of products, including blood pressure cuff, pulse oximeter, glucometer, uh, scale, you know, all the basics. And it all connects through Bluetooth to your cell phone. Correct. And you can set it up so that it records it in your app on your phone, and it can send it to as many as five different people whenever you want them to. It can even do it automatically. I only go to my physician's office once a year, but I meet with him every two to four weeks. He gets all of my vitals done through my eye health equipment, and sometimes we meet on the phone, sometimes we meet on a video conference call. It depends upon what's going on with me at any given moment. But he only actually needs me in his office once a year so he can do lab work. The rest of the and, time, it's and, all telemedicine. Right. It's, uh, and how much, you know, does that save people? Let's say people who are not as mobile or maybe need some help to get to a doctor's office, so which it involves other kinds of arrangements, either from family That's or... me. Right, or, or, you know, home health agencies or, you know the person who's a little more confused and so changing that environment from home to a doctor's office can be even more confusing and add to that. I mean, all of these things are really terrific in helping people, you know, stay in their homes and, and still remain, you know, have a, a certain level of health and, and, um, and well-being. Um, if obviously, like you say, if the doctor gets the information and doesn't look good, well, then that's a whole other story. Then, then you step it up to the next level. So I think we have to get more of this information out to people because people don't know it. So it's about right. it's about people. It comes boils down to the same thing: getting the information in advance, not waiting until it happens. It, have a conversation. Sit down and talk about these issues. Yes, maybe some of them are uncomfortable. You know, I, I say to people, people don't want to talk about older, getting older because it's almost like a disease or like, you know, they feel like if they talk about it, it's, it's, they're going to catch it or something. You know, it's, it's like not a, a, a conversation that they feel comfortable about, like it's never going to happen to them, but it is happening. And it's happening to your, your parents right in front of you or your loved one who experiences they may have a stroke or a heart attack or, you know, a fall, whatever it is. 
So it's really important. I, I really urge people Get this information beforehand. You know, I, if I could facilitate that conversation in any way, I'd love to. If there's information that I can provide to people so that they feel more confident when that situation arises, so that they can make a better decision for their loved one, so they can be better advocates. And, you know, and therefore, you know, I tell people something also that's very important. When uh, and and maybe Gina, you could um, you could attest to this in some way. Um, you know, people um, think that that be, when they need care, that they're at the mercy of the provider. Let's say we're talking about short-term rehabilitation. You know, you're seeking care for yourself or your loved one, and you feel like you're at their mercy to a certain degree because you're the one who needs care. What I tell people is, this is a business, and every business needs customers. And like any other business, you're really in the driver's seat because you're, without you, they wouldn't have a business. Yes, you need care, but you can, you can demand the care that you want for yourself or your loved one. I mean, you do that if you go buy a pair of shoes or a car or whatever it is that you go and buy. And I think people just have to change their mindset about that. You really are the consumer. You really are in the driver's seat. And, I well, and again, to... preparation is crucial on this issue. Correct. So I have a whole team of physicians. I, I don't just have my general practitioner. I have a general practitioner. I have an infectious disease specialist. I have a gastro guy. I have a uh, dermatologist slash cosmetic surgeon. I, mean, I have a whole team of people. And as I was selecting my doctors, I really was interviewing them. I didn't just take the recommendation my insurance company made for me. One of the most important questions I've asked when I first start working with a physician is, what is your philosophy about your role as a physician? The answer I'm looking for is this. I want a physician who really feels that their role is one that is collaborative. I don't want a physician that's going to dictate to me what my care is going to be. If they choose to do that, that's great. They can go find other patients, but they're not getting me as a patient. I am a very well-educated woman. I, I graduated from law school. I used to be a litigator in toxic tort cases. I've got lots and lots of knowledge about medical stuff, including from my own history. And I want to play an active role in the choices that are made for my care and well-being. So if they're not willing to take me on as a collaboration partner in my well-being, then I go find another physician. But you have to plan that in advance. I agree, but I think that's also a very crucial point that you bring up because you probably are not the average because of your background, Mm -hmm. education, and your medical status. But there are many people still who are intimidated by doctors, and they're, they're, not even, they're even reluctant to ask them questions. Whatever the doctor says, they go with that. And, uh, you know, that's another area where you have to be informed and empowered so that you, you know, this is just a person who went to school. <laughs> you know, they, they got a degree. Exactly. And um, that's their profession. Um, you know, and I, I have friends who are are very well-educated people who have PhDs and, you know, doctoral-level people. When they go to the doctor and I'll say, and they'll tell me they put them on a certain medication, I say, yeah, how come? They'll say, I don't know. I say, you, what are you talking about? You didn't ask? I, you know, people are reluctant to do that. And the more information you have, um, you know, the more comfortable you will be doing that. But there is a flip side of that because I've experienced that also where, you know, people can get information on any search engine and sometimes when you have too much information and you you don't really have the ability to weigh it or the, the skills because you haven't had education in that area, um, you know, it's almost like, you know, knowing too little but you but it's like, too much, too little, you know what I mean? And I've yes, seen that yes, happen. Yes. 
where people become very challenging, and it, and it can be not in the best interest of the patient. So I think, as with anything else, it's really a fine line. But people should not, you know, feel that they can't question a doctor, can't ask questions, or can't interview them and see if they're going to provide the care that, that they think is best for them because, you know, that might not be the right fit. It might not even be the right personality. And there's another thing that I really talk about at length, which is cultural diversity. Our cultural, you know, there are so many seniors that are of many different cultures, you know, in this country. And um, not only caregivers, but there are doctors that are here from many, many different countries. And so there are also, you know, cultural differences in how people communicate, what they understand, what they're willing to ask. And that's where I also talk about communication and empathy is so important in that interaction because, you know, it could be very detrimental to your well-being. And that's a, that's a whole other true. topic. Cultural diversity is, is a whole other <clears> conversation <throat> and topic. It's huge. It's really huge. Especially when you look at nursing homes because the people within the the professions in the nursing homes are from all different cultures. They're not just, you know, Correct. your typical American. Well, whatever that is, I mean, whatever typical American is, I don't, I don't know what that is, but you're certainly right. People An are Anglo-Saxon type from, of a typical American. They come from cultures all over the world. Absolutely, and there are, you know, there are also uh, issues that come up about, you know, how how do you address an older person? Do you look at them? You know, what are, what are the appropriate communication distances? What kind of touch is acceptable? And this comes, you know, so much affects the care in a nursing home. And it's something that I really, really am starting to talk. People are starting to hear me a little bit because I've been actually screaming about this. Well, not screaming, but you know what I mean. I've been talking about this for many, many years. Um, and I, I think now people are starting to realize it because communication, um, as of November, communication is going to be um, – nursing homes are going to have to demonstrate that their staffs are trained in certain aspects of communication and empathy. So I'm – you know, I guess oh, I'm ahead of the curve. Oh, that's fantastic news. Yeah, I think I was I was ahead of the curve, but at least, you know, now that I've been talking about it for years, I have some people that will probably say, oh, you know, I heard that before. <laughs> Where did I hear that before? Uh, it's a huge, huge issue. In that is the whole cultural diversity piece, which is still not being addressed that specifically, but I really talk about it quite a bit. You know, and I've seen horrible can, situations. Um, you how know, can people not, find out more about you, Phyllis? Where can they find out more about you and connect with you? Oh, thanks an awful lot for asking. Well, I'm all on all social media platforms. Um, I also, my website is www.voiceforeldercare, V-O-I-C-E, for, spelled out, F-O-R, Elder, E-L-D-E-R, care.com, or they can email me at phyllis, P-H-Y-L-L-I-S, at voiceforeldercare.com. Oh, that's fantastic. Andrea, any final questions from you? You've got about two minutes. Oh, I, I just would like to know what's next for you. Is What's your next big thing that you want to make happen? Uh, well, you know, I I want to continue speaking out on um, radio shows and TV shows and talking about this message and speaking at different events about these issues and training on caregiving. And, um, you know, I probably have another book in the offing. I'm actually in the process of working with some people across the country in a collaborative way. Um, so I'm hoping that by doing that, you know, we're all – have the same vision and the same goal that we will be able to inspire people to seek out information and to become more informed and become more, you know, effective in their advocacy so that our loved ones really get more care, get better care, have a better quality of life, and that we will get the same. Well, Phyllis, if there's ever anything Andrea or I can do to help, please just reach out through Andrea. I'd love to be, you know, supportive in any way that I can. 
I really appreciate it. This has been absolutely terrific. And, and Gina, I have to tell you, thanks for some of those great ideas because I, I think they're terrific, and I applaud you and, and all your efforts and all you've accomplished, you know, through your hardships. So I think it's thank great. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. And Andrea and I will be back same time, same place next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. Thanks so much for arranging this, Andrea. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you. You too. Take care. Tune in next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook on our Leverage Blackbook page to keep up with the latest. We'll see you next time on Leverage Masters. Uh-huh.